where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. And friends, we are again going to jump right in. We did this last week, and we're going to do it again. We are continuing this series of words. These are the big words in Christian theology and in Christian teaching that can take on a whole lot of meaning and that are always worth re-examining or examining for the very first time if you're new to this tradition. And this morning, the word we're going to look at is sin. Now, let me tell you, it's been quite a week to contemplate sin. In the Hebrew, the word sin is hata, which means to go astray. And before we look at some of the early teachings and understandings of this word, let's take a look at what is known in the literary world as a framing story. And I'm turning now to a colleague, Brian McLaren, who was an English teacher before he was a pastor. And Brian talks about framing stories. He says, framing stories are what gives people direction, value, vision, and inspiration by providing a framework for their lives. Our framing story, whether implicit or explicit, conscious or not, drives how we see ourselves and others. And it will drive how we see and use the power and authority that each life holds. We are born into a story that is already in motion. Whether it is a family story, a community story, a church story, or a nation's story. James Baldwin said it this way. He said, when we are born, the standards of civilization or the story of civilization that we are born into are outside of us. But by the time we become adults, the story or standards of civilization are inside of us. And it's what's inside of us that gets acted out that we need to look at when it comes to this word hata, or going astray. Brian McLaren really details these different stories, and he says, if our framing story tells us that the purpose of life is for individuals or nations to accumulate an abundance of possessions and to experience the maximum amount of pleasure during the maximum number of minutes of our short lives, then we will have little reason to manage our consumption. If our framing story tells us that we are in life and death competition with each other, then we will have little reason to seek reconciliation and collaboration 
and nonviolent resolutions to our conflicts. Where is this story at work in your life? In other words, how has some variation of this story taken hold of your life? There's another story. If our framing story tells us that we are free and responsible creatures in a creation made by a good, wise, and loving God, and that our creator wants us to pursue virtue, collaboration, peace, and mutual care for one another, and all living creatures, and that our lives can have profound meaning if we align ourselves with God's wisdom, character, and dream for us, then our society will take a radically different direction, and our world will become a very different place. This is the gospel story. This is the story that Jesus embodied. And on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, it's also worth noting that this is the story that the nonviolent civil rights movement embodied. This is the story we teach here in this church. The central character is God, the creator. And it's God's dream that we yearn for and seek to co-create. Where is the second story, the gospel story at work in your life? How has this gospel story taken hold of your life? Friends, which kingdom or dream do you seek? Which story are you living And where have you gone astray or been led astray? While there are different variations of these stories, it's important to note that you cannot live two stories at once. Scripture says it this way, you can't serve two masters or you can't serve two gods. So let's look at some of the early teachings that led to an understanding of the foundation of sin so that we can help each other identify where we might have moved from one story to another and to identify which story we are living or trying to live. Because I don't think that perfection is the goal. Practice is the goal. And the gift of a church community is that we practice together. I'm guessing you've heard of the seven deadly sins. It's quite a title, isn't it? What you may not know is what came first. Before these seven sins, there was the eight terrible temptations. These eight terrible temptations came from the fourth century. They're part of the desert tradition. And if you remember your Christian history, you may know that it was in the fourth century that Christianity moved to the center 
of the Roman Empire. And when that happened, the ascetics and the people that were practicing Christianity uh, moved to the fringes. Christianity was not intended to be in the center of commerce or in the center of Rome because in doing so, it lost some of its edge. It lost some of its fervor for justice. Its story became diluted, if you will. And so these desert folks went out to the fringes And this desert tradition, these ancestors in faith, were the ones who identified these eight terrible temptations. So there they were living an ascetic life in the desert, very minimal um, aspects, very minimal in terms of food and housing uh, and the people that they spoke with. There was a lot of solitude, and there was hardship. It was hard to live in the desert. But they identified these thoughts, and there were eight. These temptations of gluttony, of lust or desire, of greed, of despair or sadness, of anger or strong feelings of any kind, despondency, vainglory, and pride. Of course, they had a lot of time to examine the thoughts of their mind and how they took hold of them. And they went even further. And they said those at the beginning stages of a spiritual journey or a Christian life are more apt to experience the materialistic temptations, the ones related to appetite, like gluttony, lust, and greed. Those in the middle of the journey were more apt to experience the inward or soul-troubling terrible temptations, that being despair or sadness, or anger, or strong feelings of any kind, and despondency. And then those who are fully initiated into the contemplative life, they noted are most susceptible to the more subtle and spiritual or intellectual temptations, that of vainglory and pride. Now, I know it would have been helpful if I had given you a handout with these things so you could follow along, but. If you just Google the eight terrible temptations, you can find similar information. The desert parents noticed that these temptations began as thoughts, and the thoughts themselves were not problematic. In fact, they seemed quite natural and almost predictable if they can predict at what stage in a spiritual journey you might be most susceptible to the different temptations. It seemed like they were onto something, and in fact, this became 
a foundation for cognitive behavioral therapy that is still practiced to this day. These early desert ancestors were the first psychologists, if you will. So they documented and cataloged. And it was where the thoughts led and what one did with those thoughts, both personally and communally, that really made a difference. Because each one can be transformed and used in service of the gospel story. And in fact, sometimes just identifying what it is can be helpful. Just naming it. So the materialistic and the appetite temptations, gluttony, lust, and greed, well, you can see where those temptations go. And in fact, there's a multi-billion dollar industry called advertising that vies for our attention with the empty promise that an item will bring joy or happiness or even love. The question here is what are you really hungry for? Is there a hunger and a desire for justice and truth? If so, then the simplicity of enough and the sharing of resources is a commitment that can be made and returned to when the temptation to gather more and to have an eye on a particular item at the expense of the relationships in family or in community or even in country might be at hand. The inward and the soul troubling, the strong feelings of despair or sadness or anger or despondency, leads to a question of what does what you hate or what makes you angry teach you about what you love and value? These strong feelings are very helpful in uncovering what we love and what we value. Another question is, what does what you hold on to teach you about where mercy and compassion are needed? And then the third element, the spiritual or the intellect. One of the questions that we can ask there is, who's the protagonist in this story? Remember, spiritual and intellect is vainglory and pride. Who's the protagonist in this story? Remembering that the Christian life is one where each of us, including me, are followers. And the life is lived and offered as a way of giving glory to God. One of my favorite quotes that I've learned just from this series is, don't be deceived or impressed by your own cleverness. Friends, our need for God, 
needs to come before our understanding of God's invitation to us to be co-creators. It is true that God has no hands but ours. God has no mouth but ours. God has no feet but ours. But the first word in that sentence is God, not us. It's a humility that pride does not allow. And I want to invite you to see these movements, these three layers of the beginner, the intermediate, and the advanced, if you will, which in and of themselves can be troubling because who doesn't want to be advanced? But I think you've heard it said here before that I often wonder, when am I going to get out of kindergarten and start to feel like I'm in elementary school or high school? The degrees I have mean nothing when an honest self-assessment can say, gosh, I feel like I'm just learning this or learning this again for the 10th, the 20th, the 30th time. So these movements, it's not like you really do pass from one to two to three. It's circular. It's always in play, always possible. Or maybe the spiral helps you. Maybe you like the image of a spiral where you can go deeper, the relearning, down toward a few layers of the spiral. You're like, okay, I've learned this 10 times. How many more times do I have to learn this? I hope you're laughing a little bit. If I didn't have a mask on, you'd see that I'm smiling. Because this doesn't have to be painful work. It's really quite a relief to acknowledge how easily we can be led astray. And I think when we acknowledge that, we make room for God. I mean, that's what our confession is about, right? Our confession is, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that again. But confession also has another element. Confession allows us to give praise and thanks to God. Thank you for showing me that again. Or thank you for showing me that this time. This feels new and I appreciate it. I know some people feel like things in this country are at an unprecedented sort of escalation of things are worse than ever. But I don't see it that way. I think things are finally coming to light again, because they're not coming to light for the first time. But what I know of the Spirit is that if you don't see it the first time, the second time it's even stronger. And the third time it can be stronger still. And the fourth time, stronger still. It's like that metaphor of the closet. If you keep shoving things into the closet that you don't want to look at, 
eventually when you open the door, it's all going to come tumbling down onto the floor. It could even be tumbling down upon you. What has been hidden or stuffed away must come to light and must be dealt with or else it will persist and grow even stronger. So friends, if you hunger for truth and justice, we must remember that what has been hidden must come to light and what has been covered will be uncovered. That's the way of God. If you value the dignity of all beings and each element of creation, What has been lost must be found. The breach must be confessed and repaired. If you long for a love that is unconditional and eternal, turn into the everlasting arms of God and live God's dream. Here's what that sounds like in our gospel story. This is from the Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There are so many other examples of what this sounds like in the gospel story. And I hope that you'll pick up your book and open it so that the Spirit can show you what it means to be a part of God's dream and how the ways that we have been led astray are a full-on commitment of God and God's Spirit to bring us back and to help us turn.